What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, A zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Colin. Uh, just keep that open. Uh, we're going to be looking at those verses um, closely in a moment. And I, I noticed Colin's left me the clicker here. I was going to give uh, Colin the opportunity to just see. This is a test to see the people on the sound desk are paying attention in the sermon, whether they know which slide to, uh, to click on to next. Um, I haven't used this clicker before, but oh, oh there he is, he's on the ball, excellent. Uh, and so, welcome. You'll see the slide behind me, he talks about the word one-to-one. And uh, the reason I, I put that up is because we've been doing Mission Month. And uh, what a joy uh, September has been, hasn't it? Wasn't it great to be able to uh, take that time to pray and call upon God and to invite our friends and welcome newcomers and to to hear the gospel so clearly presented and proclaimed and have questions and answers and and all the things we're able to do. And and, uh, I'm really thankful to John for coming to share with us. And I'm thankful to everyone who prayed and invited. I think you'll remember right at the beginning I said, what would success look like for Mission Month? And it would be that people were praying and invited someone to, to join us. And uh, I just want to take to this morning to think about, well, what did we learn from Mission Month and what are we going to do about it? And uh, I put this slide up here because I'm going to talk about a few things. Uh, but one of the things that I found super helpful, um, being able to take the next step with a friend that I've been praying for, that a friend I've invited to church or done something like that, 
uh, is to be able to sit down and read the Bible with them. Uh, and uh, the word one-to-one, in my mind, is probably the best, the simplest, the easiest way that I've found to, to do that, and it's been fantastic. And the byline there from Richard Borgonen, who you'll see the photo there, is we can't all be Bible teachers, but we can all be Bible sharers. And um, I just want to plant that as a seed, as something that might just nag away at you and something you might think about in the back of your mind as you're continuing to pray for your friends, as you continue to follow up invitations, or think about how it is that we might see this community, one for Christ, Uh, see people coming to know Jesus and one for the Lord. And I believe this is going to be a fantastic tool for each of us uh, in the coming years to to take advantage of and have in our back pocket, so to speak, ready to go. Uh, And it will be a sort of a take home that we'll be able to take with us out of this mission month. See, what have we learnt in mission month before we uh, come to John's Gospel I think we've learnt a confidence in prayer. I I hope you've been renewed in your confidence to pray. I think when Simon Manchester came, one of the great challenges he gave us was to call upon God to pray, and you know, whether as leaders gathering before the service to pray that God would perform that great miracle of softening hard hearts, and that's us, (laughs) and and also pouring out His Spirit and bringing revival in our hearts and awakening in our community. I think we've I think we've learnt confidence in prayer. I think we've learnt confidence in the invitation. That invitation only happens when you say the words, "Would you like to?" Now, yes, we can put an invitation in someone's letterbox, and about one in five thousand will respond to that. Uh, we can put something on Facebook, and about one in a thousand will respond to that. We can invite a friend, and about one in five will respond to that. Yeah, and I think having confidence to pray for our friends and to trust God and his sovereignty and control in our invitations. I pray that that's something that we've learnt and that it becomes, again, just part of who we are, that we are an inviting church, welcoming people in because we have an invitational God who longs to welcome us home to heaven with him forever. And thirdly, confidence in prayer, confidence in invitation and a confidence in the gospel. Wasn't it great the way John was able to open up the Apostles' Creed, to give us confidence in the reality of God, the history of Jesus and life in the Spirit. And I, I take it that you will have, you've now got some, some things that you can go with you when, you go, when you're out sharing with your friends about your weekend and what you were doing and, and the reality of God and, uh, and the history of Jesus and the life in the Spirit. A confidence, a renewed confidence in the Gospel. I'm not going to say too much more about that because this term, our plan is this. I want to take what we've learned in Mission Month and put it into practice. I want to let, it, I want to let the gospel shape our lives, our ministry, our vision and our future as a church and all that we're doing. And so that's where we'll be going uh, in the coming weeks. I uh, just want to flag that. And I hope that that's a really helpful and encouraging thing for you uh, as much as I'm excited about sharing that with you. Because the greatest miracle of all is for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, miracles are often seen as great displays of power. We've just sung God of wonders. He's the God who can do anything. Time and again, the Bible shows the greatest miracle of all is the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of for salvation for those who believe. 
So John chapter 2 is actually a very important um, segue between Mission Month and thinking about how the gospel shapes our lives and our ministry and what we're doing. It's a very important segue because it comes to this very question of miracles. John chapter 2 tells us about the miracles Jesus did. I think if I click, does that work? What am I meant to do? Oh, yes, okay, there we go. John chapter 2 tells about, uh, verse 18, you know, the Jews, they're asking for a sign. What sign do you show us? For doing these things. This is the big thing that's going on when Jesus comes on the scene. People want to see miracles. They ask, what authority do you have, Jesus? And of course, he's just cleansed the temple. He'd arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. All the Jews were there and they'd seen, or he'd seen as he'd come into Jerusalem, the terrible corruption that was going on in the temple the money changers, the animal sellers. Uh, At Passover, all the Jews of the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate and offer sacrifices. Do I go to the next? There we go. Uh, There he is. It was, of course, easier to buy the animal there than to carry it from wherever you had to come from. And so these money changers and these sellers were there in the temple courts. And you paid, well, you couldn't use a blasphemous Roman coin, could you, for the most holy Passover? You had to, you had to go to the money changers to, tra- to change to the temple currency. There's a materialism, there's a consumerism that Wall Street, or the wolf of Wall Street, would be proud of. Because big business, religious business, has been big since the first century. God's people had forgotten the purpose for God's house. It was a house of prayer and not a market. So verse 15 and 16, Jesus acted with force and vigour and he removes the offensive temple trade. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. It probably wasn't until some time later the disciples understood what he was saying, but it was a quote from Psalm 69 the psalm of the Messiah that Jesus quotes at his crucifixion. And it's the same psalm, and he quotes here, zeal for your house will consume me. This was his motivation. That was Jesus' concern. It's also what would consume him. His passion for God's house would lead to his death, and his enemies in the psalm are seen that they're the ones crowding around. They are the Jews who demand a sign, a miracle. It was a request to justify God's supernatural authority there in Jesus, for Jesus to defend himself, to defend his actions. They didn't see what was wrong with the temple trade. They only saw it was wrong to interfere with the temple trade. And why was Jesus taking such this this high-handed attitude? So verse 19, Jesus gives an extraordinary answer, as he always does in these situations. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. His sign will be about the resurrection. Of course, they didn't understand what he was talking about. Even the disciples didn't understand until after the resurrection. Then they worked out, as uh, uh, you read later on at the end of John's Gospel. 
The unbelief of those asking for a sign is seen in their response in verse 20. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? See, one of the ways we know the dating of Jesus' ministry, the the historical accuracy of Jesus' ministry and death is because we know the temple rebuilding started in 19 BC. It's one of these sort of casual, off-handed comments that you get in the Gospels. But shows us again the historical accuracy of what we're reading here in this account. The temple was a massive building, several football fields wide, and the Wailing Wall is the only bit left um, because it was uh, destroyed in AD seventy by the Romans. So I've got a picture there. Is that, uh, oh, no, not yet. I was there only a couple of years ago. I thought I'd put a picture in. Sorry, I'll, I'll show you another time. But the Wailing Wall, which is you know, it's that famous wall. You know, people, you see people praying there. It's the last part of this massive structure that was destroyed in AD 70. And the sheer scale of the temple made Jesus' claim absurd. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, Jesus said. But they'd forgotten that the the temple is the place where God meets his people. That's what the temple is. It's not the building. It's the place where God's meets us and where we, where we meet God, in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his death and his resurrection is where we meet God. That's what John's gospel lays out for us. So once he's died and once he's risen, you don't really need that temple building structure anymore. In fact, the building is totally redundant and was destroyed, as Jesus had predicted. And it was only after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples came to believe, as we read in verse 22. Notice that there that it's Jesus' words and the promises of the scripture that they came to believe. A sign without a word is meaningless. A sign without a word is not easily understood and a sign that doesn't signify anything can't be understood for it has no meaning. Signs have to symbolise something else. The important thing is what it symbolises, not the sign. So you see I'm wearing my my wedding ring here. Uh, It's a lovely ring and it points to the marriage between Alice and myself and the promises that we made to each other on that day 20 odd years ago. But it's a sign. It's not the reality you see uh, young men in hoodies. You know those ones that say, like, Cambridge University, Oxford University? It's a sign. What does the sign mean? Well, it means auntie or grandma has been a tourist in England. It doesn't mean that they actually ever attended Cambridge or Oxford University. What does the sign symbolise? Well, it's the words that tell you, and they came to understand the meaning of Jesus cleansing of the temple, this sign, because the meaning was there and written there in Psalm 69, which Jesus quoted. So it's his words and their prophecy in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's really helpful for us because this introduces the other signs in John's gospel, and there's a whole theme of signs which we're not going to um, be able to go into this morning, but Have a look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
And when they saw the signs he was doing, well, these other signs you may have thought were appointed to Jesus' success. Many believe in his name, but verse 24 is another shock to our expectations. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. We get the sense of this a bit better. We see that the word believe is the same word as entrust in the original. Believe and entrust are the same word in the original. It might be better to say many trusted in Jesus' name when they saw the signs, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. They're trusting him, but Jesus doesn't trust them. Now, which one do you think is more important? Remember who's on the bench in the, in the final courtroom, the heavenly courtroom, and who's in the dock? Most people in the dock think they can sit in judgment on the bloke in the bench, but it's the other way around. And it's very clear here that Jesus didn't trust these people who believe in him because they saw his miracles. And it's really important for us to see that because... Jesus knows what's in a person's heart. What does he know about us that means he didn't trust us? He knows that we're sinners, but more than that, he knows that this kind of belief in signs and miracles was not the real thing. People who believe because they see signs are not true believers in his word, which introduces us to the man Nicodemus. Now, Colin, um, correctly, didn't read the next little bit, but the next little bit is fascinating. Nicodemus is the righteous ruler who came in the secrecy of the night and believed Jesus but didn't trust. So ignoring the chapter divisions, because they were basically an unhelpful later edition uh, at this point, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Why doesn't he trust Nicodemus? Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus is a miracle believer, not a Jesus believer. Miracle believers think they're believers, but they're not the real thing. And Jesus goes on to show Nicodemus and us that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And this is the problem for Israel. They should have known from the scriptures that when the Messiah came, it was all about the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is only saying what the scriptures have always said. And these Jewish miracle believers should have known that, but they don't. They didn't believe God's word, and so they don't understand what the miracles mean. But after the resurrection, the disciples remembered the scriptures, and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, the whole chapter is showing us this. You know, in the first part of chapter 2, Jesus does his first miracle. He turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana, the first of his signs. And the key to that sign was that the water turned into wine was for purification and he turned it into the best 
wine possible. Now, Alice and I have just had a lovely time at the Hunter Valley. Got to taste some lovely Chardonnays. Alice found a few rosés that she liked. And this was better than any of those. Moses has given us the law, but Jesus gives us grace abundantly. That's what it says in John chapter 1, the very first chapter. Here is the law and the rules to wash your body. That's what the Old Testament says. But Jesus is going to give you the spirit to change your heart. And though, and we discover this in, in, that, in that miracle at the wedding at Cana, this is not Jesus' hour. His mother has the right attitude. Do whatever he tells you. She has confidence in Jesus and his word. And so they do it, and it happens. And if you understand what it's about, you'll see the way grace flows and the way new life comes. Let's come to us today. Think about the problem we have in our world today. People want miracles. People want a a cure for the coronavirus. We'd all love to see that. We'd love to see a vaccine or a treatment or a cure. People want healing. People want a fix for the economy, for their jobs, for their lives and relationships. They want to see God at work in order to believe. And they believe in miracles more than they believe in the word of God. See, miracles are not just a demonstration of power to make you say, oh, wow, awesome. They actually have a symbolic biblical meaning. Turning water into wine was the replacement of the law and the new age of the spirit. Jesus' promise of the new temple was fulfilled at his resurrection. The true temple is in through Jesus. So this is the same for us today. The implications are for us today. Look, there's two, two sort of implications. Oh, there was Jesus and Nicodemus. Okay, two implications. Uh, temple worship's still alive and well today. Even though Jesus demolished it and made it obsolete, we still go on with temple worship, which is absurd. You hear it sometimes when people talk about their church building as their sanctuary. My sanctuary is in heaven. It's not an earthly building. There's no sanctuary within a church building. That's not true. Although we have uh, communion rails here that create a a sanctuary for a church. Uh, In the Book of Common Prayer, we go back to our original documents, there are no communion rails. They were invented 100 years after Cranmer died. Did you know that? Cranmer died against temple worship, as did St Stephen, the first martyr, because he understood the temple was done away with in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But so much of church buildings and practice and liturgy in both traditional and contemporary churches is a kind of return to temple worship. But we have a high priest who's in heaven, who who on the heavenly altar has offered up the perfect sacrifice for all time, who's done away with all other sacrifices, who makes us all priests. So we can now enter the presence of God Our danger even here is that people will see our building, our priest and our sacrifices, uh, where you've got to go each week if you're going to get in touch with God. And we need to be clear that we point people to Jesus. Well, the other thing that people turn to is the miracles. You see up there uh, Benny Hinn. And uh, if you haven't watched on Netflix The American Gospel, you've got to watch that, an incredible kind of... 
uh, expose of the whole miracles and um, movement in the US. Very, very fascinating, fascinating show. People turn to miracles today, not to what they signify, but to the kind of wonder and amazement and to try and hold on to something tangible. And plenty of people are making money out of it through TV and conferences. But true faith is listening to Jesus' word, trusting in him. Finish with the great Charles Spurgeon. He said on prayer, imagine if I go down the aisle at the end of my sermon and I'm met by an angel. And the angel says, I have a word from God for you, Mr. Spurgeon. What would I say, says Spurgeon? I'd say, I don't want to hear it, thanks. And the angel says, no, no, you must hear what I've got to say. And he says, no, I'd rather not. But God has told me I must tell you. Mr. Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said, I don't want to hear it. But if you must, do what you must do, but I'd rather you didn't. Mr. Spurgeon, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Spurgeon says, then I would say, be gone, you damnable angel, because up until now I had my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lamb, and you're tempting me to put my faith in the word of an angel. Powerful illustration, isn't it? Because you and I, we'd love an angel to come and whisper into our ears, Matt, your name's in the book of life. It's all going to be okay. Well, it is. If the Lord Jesus Christ has died for you and died for me, you don't need to trust the miracles or even the word of an angel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful we can be here today to hear your word, to hear you speak to us. We thank you for the incredible blessing it is to have been uh, hearing the gospel so faithfully proclaimed and being involved in your mission. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to move forward that you would give us uh, hearts that seek you first, that are immersed in your word, and find joy and peace and assurance in all you've done for us. Thank you. We can be here together in Jesus' name. Amen.